Yo, yo, yo. Meow. What's up, everybody? We are back. It's Actually a Podcast. I'm Chris. I'm DJ. And today we are covering another episode of John Verbeke's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. It's Meaning Making 101, fam. And in this series, we are learning how to cultivate wisdom in our lives. We're learning how to overcome the meaning crisis that is wrapping around this world and causing so much social division, breakdown, signs of civilizational civilizational breakdown are on the horizon, and everybody's seeing it now. It's one of those times where people are less sure about the future than ever before, and we're experiencing greater and greater senses of meaninglessness and hopelessness and all of those kinds of things that come about when you start to chop out the sense of the sacred out from underneath yourself as a culture, which it seems that we've been doing. We have lost our connection to the sacred. So this series that John Bravaki has shared with us, we're on episode 44 now of a 50-lecture series. So we're almost done. It's incredible. I can't believe we've made it this far. And thank you so much, all of you, for joining us. Let me get us live on Facebook and stop talking here for a moment. Got to look after our Facebook viewer. Yeah, we do. <laughs> that, right? Facebook viewer. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> Go live. All oh, I had to do was press the button the whole time. Oh, What's up, Facebook fam? We are back. It's Actually Podcast with another episode of mm-hmm. Meaning Making 101. We were just talking about how uh, important this series is to humankind at this time, mm-hmm. at this point in history. And how we can indeed help ameliorate the sense of meaninglessness and help usher in an awakening from the meaning crisis. That's what we're here to do. We're on episode 44 of a 50 lecture series, guys. This episode's on theories of wisdom, and our last episode was on wisdom and virtue. So I guess we could do a quick uh, recap of our last episode. We're going to do a shorter synopsis than we normally do, just uh, to keep the podcast from running too long. So let's go ahead and do that. So um, there is a um, some theories to wisdom. Uh, we discussed Fortune Sharp um, in a paper they published in 2006, um, regardless of the name of the paper. We're looking at virtue as a form of excellence, not as how things are broken down into their pieces, but how they excel past the norm, right? So um, we're not looking at virtues as a as a uh, feature list, which would imply the maximization of every, any one virtue. Um, we need a schema. So we're going to try to create a schema of the virtues, you know, cause you need to optimize them. If you're too honest, then you're an asshole. If you're not honest enough and you're just trying to spare someone's feelings, you might, you know, end up harming them worse. So we're looking at the virtues as interdependent pieces of perhaps the same thing, perhaps not. Um, so like there's the story of the bride, you know, how do I look? Well, you don't tell, you know, the bride completely honestly, but you have to be honest enough so she doesn't look foolish when she's on stage. Okay. Or like grading somebody's paper. If you're too accurate on their grading, maybe you're going to stunt their forward progress. So maybe morally you feel like you need to give them a little bit more, but when does that giving them a little bit more go from pushing them further and make them feel good about it to stunting them and then thinking they're doing all right. All right. So the morals or virtues are clearly not separate. Um, yeah. So, and moving on, um, and you can't put rules to virtues either, you know, so like, you know, just be kind Well, that's not specific enough, you know, like, well, be kind, like I would be to my lover, be kind, like I'd be to a stranger to like my kid, to my dog, 
different ways of being kind and rules aren't um, specific enough to cover. Um, uh, so the idea is we need a higher order ability that deals with um, wisdom. Uh, let's see. Uh, so there's the Aristotle's distinction of, um, you know, wisdom. You have Sophia and Phrenesis and the way that these two fellas, uh, what was their name again? Uh, up, up, it uh, and Zelligman? No, um, Schwartz and Sharp. Okay. okay so, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm way down the list. Um, so Schwartz and Sharp kind of left out Sophia because they, you know, they, assigned you know or they thought it was the rules dimension you know like it's theoretical and it's only rules whereas phrenesis is your practical wisdom so they focused on the practical um and yeah because if we go too far into sophia their fear would be we replace wisdom with laws and then we'd just be legislating everything. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's two questions, you know, do the legislations do good by us, but then, you know, do they, or do they do no harm? Or the second question we should ask is, is do these legislations stop us from wanting to move further into wisdom? Right. That's right. Cause we can confuse having laws for instilling virtues yeah. or cultivating wisdom. There needs to be a balance. Will legislation will reduce the harm or will it make people less likely to pursue wisdom and cultivate wisdom? Yeah, cultivate so wisdom. Um, they think that phronesis, um, so phronesis is context sensitive, right? But we, we, we need this Sophia for the awareness of the context mm -hmm. still. So what Verveke is arguing, you can't just throw Sophia out and only That's go right. into phronesis. Because you need you need to be context specific and general. That's right. And um, Schwartz, um, you need something that you can utilize that can be context sensitive in yeah. a generalizing manner, such as wisdom. So each of the virtues are kind of like a different aspect of wisdom in that moment. Yeah. So yeah. sometimes you need to be kind. Sometimes you need to be courageous. Sometimes mm -hmm. you need to be honest. Sometimes you need to be. Yeah, you know, compassionate with how you use your language and so on and so forth. And so we talked about expertise and how that's kind of flawed because you you know expertise is a know how in a specific context, right? right. But right. we need to be sensitive to all tech contexts, right? So mm -hmm. we need both. So we need to get both in an oppositional mm -hmm. relationship, basically. Yeah, that healthy kind of oppositional calibrating style, focusing kind of relationship. Yeah. So what um, Verveke's arguing is and that's what our relevance realization is mm -hmm. always doing for us. Yeah. Right? Sorry to interrupt there. So uh, what um, Verveke's arguing is phronesis is not expertise per se, mm -hmm. uh, but being sensitive in multiple contexts. Yes. Um, so we need a d uh, domain of general ability to be context sensitive. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So we need to stay away from foolishness. Um, That's right. So Boltz and Staudinger, St 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 sorry. Um, the Berlin, so the seminal... Um, Stalinger, yeah. Um, basically a se seminal paper on like trying to scientifically find what is wisdom and so they um, basically developed this is a lot but they basically developed certain criteria uh, for what makes somebody wise um, uh, that's right yeah um, and the pragmatic see. aspects of language and the pragmatism yeah. of language they looked yeah. at so what is pragmatic yeah. wisdom for instance um and then they brought up uh, uh so one is 
the first thing you need is you need a rich fundamental knowledge of the fundamental pragma pragmatics of life, right? Yeah. And then you need the procedural knowledge of the fundamental pragmatics of life. And then what they're calling lifespan contextualism, which is seeing the big picture and seeing the little picture. And that's the perspectival. Right. Um, there's a bit of an issue with this term, um, relativism of uh, values and priorities. And the reason why is, you know, the term relativism of, you know, it's like all these great thinkers, they weren't moral relativists. And we have a tendency to be very much moral relativists in this period of time, you know, thinking that, and he's not, he's not dismissing these values, but say liberal Western values is not the font of wisdom. He's not dismissing the values, but no. it's not where you go find they're, wisdom. They're a result of wisdom. Yeah, yeah. Applied um, in particular cultural and, context or in historic context. So, um, so wisdom's a meta heuristic. Um, that is a meta heuristic pragmatic to orchestrate mind and virtue towards yeah. excellence. Yeah. So within this relativism of values, you need uh, fallibilism, which is never expressing certainty, mm -hmm. and then humility, mm -hmm. which is a re recognition of of and application of your status limitations all those things yes and then the fifth is a recognition and management of uncertainty so basically doing the best you can within the context of everything being uncertain mm -hmm. so those criteria are what really sh like are criteria that you can measure you can apply you can create tests for to see you know say who is more wise you know or has good judgment for wisdom mm -hmm. so there was an experiment where using these testing who has good wisdom um and then the next thing they did they had another experiment where they had group one would talk to another person um about they gave them a question yeah about a question and they said so the first group they told them you're allowed to talk to somebody yeah. like a loved one yeah and then the second and then the second group you're allowed to imagine just right? yeah just imagine talking to somebody talking to somebody and then the third Your group was only given more time to think and what ended so they up, were never even told about the idea that they could imagine talking to someone else. No, they just, were just given, just given said, some, okay, yeah, yeah, you guys have more time to think. Yeah. So um, what they ended up finding is group one and group two both did way better on figuring out the problem. And then also mm -hmm. uh, the first test, of, you know, taking the test, how good they take the test, it changed that. And this shows that we need each other for wisdom, not yes. just time to think about it. Yes. And, and whether or not the person is real or just in your head too. So you right. can simulate it as well within yourself. Yeah, so, we're really good at simulating other people inside of ourselves. Mm -hmm. So internalizing another person's personality so that you can dialogue with them when you're confronting a complex, difficult issue, it's incredibly helpful. It yeah. actually helps you develop the wisdom that you need to make the best decision yeah. you can in that situation. And they call and it the Solomon, Solomon effect, having the third yes. person effect uh, inside your own head of bouncing mm -hmm. something off of mm -hmm. somebody so else. So like the idea of what would Jesus do? Yeah. Or what would Socrates or Buddha do, depending on your yeah. philosophical background or whatever you're interested in? Yeah. And You that's... can internalize someone that you find as very wise, learn a lot about them, and then you can internalize them even better, and they can be something really helpful to bounce off inside your own mind and because we find that humans are smarter in groups than they are individually it's the same with wisdom we are wiser in groups than we are individually and we can even at least do a virtual person in our head and mm -hmm. it's better than just trying to figure something out with your own individual perspective yeah let's say so taking on another person's perspective widens your total awareness widens your perception
that's why con compassion is so useful in, yeah. in life. Widens your perception and increases um, your ability to find things salient. Yes. So you're seeing not... from other people's yeah. perspectives. You're putting yourselves in other people's shoes. The more that you're able to be compassionate and open up to other people's points of views, the wider total awareness that you have to understand this world around you. Mm -hmm. So this is really, really helpful. Unconditionality, like yeah. Jesus taught, yeah. is the ultimate uh, posture or orientation that a human being can take in order to enact wisdom in this world, make the best decisions, and apply themselves in the optimal way, even in physical circumstances. You know, you put yourself into the flow state to play ball or to climb a mountain or what have you. Yeah. So that's that's all I have for right on the recap. There's a lot of stuff you know left out of there, but 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 between what we just did and what he's going to do and then just you know sometimes i have to go back and watch previous episodes to gather things because yeah. you know it's like terms it's really helpful stuff. to do that and if you guys are enjoying this episode you know please do go ahead and look up john Bravaki, learn more about him like and subscribe to his channel and you can look up mark mulvey who took notes on every single episode mm. of this series his notes are immaculate they're excellent they'll be very helpful for you in understanding everything because it's hard to get everything on the first pass sometimes uh, it helps to rewatch some parts of these if you're having trouble. Uh, but it, he does such a good job of reiterating and returning to previous concepts that you do eventually gain enough of a gestalt, you could say, the, the yeah. total. The, the total that is more than the sum of its you, parts. You will get what he's pointing to yeah, at the very got, least. you got to love the Germans. They have a word for that, not yeah. just the total of things. And we're here to learn with you guys. <laughs> so if you have questions, ask us in the chat. Feel free to throw your comments down. It really helps the algorithm too. So if you guys like... You share, you subscribe. Those things help a lot. Commenting on any of these videos helps even more. It's the ultimate thing to do to help this algorithm get some juice and push us out there. We'd really like to be able to reach more people to help invite more people into this process. And, you know, we're right here with you guys. We're not, you know, some great wise teachers above you all. We're just fellow human beings here along the path, learning from somebody wiser than ourselves and welcoming you into that process. So welcome everybody we're, we're not wise men in. even though sometimes we're wise guys true that <laughs> we are wise guys sometimes yeah they called the wise guy since i was a teenager right oh yeah wise guy uh, oh crap. i gotta throw uh a screen up here oh, for us we gotta fast. do a screen thing yeah we got a new camera and had to figure that out had some latency issues and all that stuff so we're like getting in by the skin of our teeth on this one and also it looks a little funny for right now but we gotta figure out the white balance and everything into that camera's guts and figure out what you know all those settings but you know you can see us clearly now i don't know why it's not showing up oh no oh well anyways we're gonna jump right into it guys so here we go this is episode 44 of john verbakey's awakening from the meaning crisis big bow yeah it's not showing up but it will here Welcome back to Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. So last time we took a look at the uh, theory of uh, Schwartz and Sharp, and that was an important theory for linking wisdom to virtue and positive psychology. And we saw the deep connections between uh, wisdom and uh, the cultivation and practice of virtue. Um, we made some criticisms of Schwartz and Sharp. I argued that they should include uh, Sophia and not just phronesis. If you remember those, they were invoking Aristotle's two notions of wisdom <coughs> and giving priority 
uh, to phronesis. I think you need both, as Aristotle argued, Sophia and phronesis, in order to be virtuous. I also argued that their attempt to explain uh, phronesis with expertise, I think, was uh, confused, and we should put that uh, aside. <coughs> and then we took from that um, some ideas about um, the, the, you know, the developmental aspect. That's, of course, central to Aristotle. Remember, he brought the developmental dimension to wisdom, and how much uh, wisdom is becoming a virtuous person. Um, uh, other things, I think, are lacking in the theory, and we'll come back to this. There wasn't much discussion about the connection between wisdom and meaning in life. But we then passed to taking a look at a theory that took very seriously the connection between wisdom and virtue. And this is the seminal theory uh, work of Boltz and Stoninger. Uh, we took a look at the idea of uh, the, the meta-heuristics, pragmatics, uh, right, for orchestrating mind and virtue and excellence. And they talked about the fundamental pragmatics of life. I pointed out to you that a, a way of making sense conjointly of the invocation of meta-heuristics and both senses of pragmatics is this idea uh, of uh, that its core to wisdom is this capacity for uh, uh, relevance realization, <coughs> obviously improved in some fundamental way, which I think means that there's integral connections between wisdom and intelligence via uh, the notion of rationality that we've already been developing together. And then we took a look at the five criteria. There was clear indications of propositional knowledge, um, uh, procedural knowledge. The contextualism, I argued, can be best be seen as perspectival knowing. <coughs> I argued against their, uh, their notion of relativism and argued instead for humility and fallibilism. And then, uh, obviously, I, I, the, the <coughs> I think that's, uh, sorry, that, 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 that was maybe too harsh to them. I think it's pretty clear that many of the seminal figures of wisdom figures from the past were not moral relativists or relativists in any significant way. So we, I, th I strongly recommend replacing relativism with fallibilism and humility. And then finally, uh, the fifth criteria is uh, that wisdom is uh, applicable to domains in which there is uncertainty. And of course, as I've already argued, that's a huge aspect of our life and our cognition because of ill-definedness, combinatorial explosion, et cetera, et cetera, which again means relevance realization is being strongly presupposed. I want to give you some qu uh, further quotes uh, to indicate uh, what's going on uh, about that. So <clears throat> uh, they talk about uh, wisdom having to do with generativity, flexibility, and efficiency in application. And of course, the, the generativity, and, but the flexibility, but also the efficiency <clears throat> are bringing together many of the ideas that we've been talking about with relevance realization. They talk about it taking place, listen to this language, within the frame of bounded rationality. They're invoking the notion here from Simon of bounded rationality. This is rationality that is taking place within a framing. Uh, you know, it's taking place within the constraints of uh, combinatorial explosion, within the constraints <coughs> of Ill uh, working with ill-definedness. It's a notion of rationality deeply enmeshed uh, with relevance realization. They talk about uh, highly com these are all quotes I'm giving you, by the way, highly complex sets of information about the meaning and conduct of life are highly complex, okay, are reduced quickly, listen to this, to their essentials without being lost, 
in the never-ending process of information search, notice that, combinatorial explosion directly being invoked here, that were to occur if wisdom was treated as a case of unbounded rationality. So I think it's pretty clear from all of those quotes that they are directly invoking the machinery of relevance realization. I pointed out that they, with their criteria, they were able to begin the operationalization of wisdom and some of the first experimental work. They found that you know, a cognitive style in which uh, one had excellent skills of judgment seemed to be uh, predictive of the ability to do well <coughs> in uh, the experiments. They also found uh, that discussing with another person or imagining discussing with another person uh, enhanced your capacity. Uh, for wisdom, challenging an individualistic uh, notion of rationality, going back to Descartes and assumed, if you remember, uh, by Cohen in his argument. <clears throat> and uh, the, but what's really interesting about that is, you know, of course, this brings up the relevance of Platonic dialogue, but also the Stoic idea of internalizing the sage, because the case where people imagine talking to the uh, a significant other was just as efficacious as actually talking to a significant uh, other, and both of those were more efficacious than just giving more time to think and reflect on your own. I pointed out that one uh, plausible explanation for why this works <coughs> is that um, you're getting something like what Igor Grossman has shown with the, uh, the Solomon effect, that the move to take the perspective of other people, move to a third-person perspective, um, really enhances... <coughs> I'm sorry, I'm going to have to get a drink. I seem to have something caught in my throat. really enhances one's ability to overcome the transparency and the bias induction of one's own perspective. And that right, is, can be facilitated, of course, if you not only are taking the perspective of somebody who's present, but you can do that by simulating them internally. And eventually, you could internalize that perspective uh, the way we talked about with the Stoics internalizing Socrates. And one can learn to, remember this, one can learn to converse with oneself, dialogue with oneself, do something like Enlinkus with oneself and provoke aporia, and provoke the challenge and the demand uh, for transformative change. <clears throat> so I think all of this is uh, really excellent work on their part. I noted that they also, like Schwartz and Sharp, I think make the mistake of trying to understand um, wisdom in terms of expertise, and I'm not going to repeat that argument, uh, I, and I think that is a, it is a kind of fundamental mistake. I think understanding wisdom on the lines of something like rationality is a much more fruitful connection. Now, what are some uh, further criticisms of Balt and Staudinger? Um, I think one of the most important criticisms I would make uh, other than the ones I've made um, uh, about expertise and um, not being very clear on explicating the role of perspectival knowing. That's kind of an unfair criticism because it's anachronistic, but we should at least uh, endeavor to bring that into our account of wisdom given their own experiment and given the further work of Igor Grossman. I would also say that one of my criticisms, and this is a criticism that I made with Leo Ferraro in the 2013 article we published on wisdom, <clears throat> I would argue that there's a mistake here at a more theoretical and conceptual level. It's a, it's a mistake of omission, not commission. What we're getting here is a product theory of wisdom. 
in which what you're trying to do is to come up with sort of the account of what wisdom is. And that, that's a valuable thing. You should definitely do that. You should try and come up with, not just a feature list, of course. That's a little bit of a problem with just the, the list of criteria, of course. <clears throat> but what you do is you want to come up with, you know, what am I going to do? I'm going to find wise people, or I'm going to get sort of, you know, widely shared definitions of wisdom and, and try and come up with an account of uh, what wisdom is based on that. And, that, and that's, that's, a, that's a legitimate thing to do. It, it's, it omits something that's very important, though. It, it, it omits what we saw as so central to the ancient theories of wisdom that we were looking at. It, it, right? If you look at Plato, even Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and the Stoics, and, and, and if you look at the Buddha, right? And the, the centrality of transformational change uh, in wisdom is being lost in a product theory. What you also need, and these two should talk to each other, you need a process theory. You need a theory, and this is what I think the ancient uh, theories of wisdom are. You basically are, what you're getting is an account that works something like this in a process theory. You have an independent account of w what is foolishness, right? And what is flourishing. And then what a process theory tells me is how I can overcome foolishness and how I can afford flourishing. And then from that, it tries to derive what wisdom is. And I, I think this is a very important thing to do, to try and figure out what wisdom is from an account of how one becomes wise. Because first of all, it taps into this uh, longstanding an important uh, philosophical heritage. So there's a tremendous legacy that we've explored in this course that we should be making use of. And secondly, it does something that I think is much clearer than what a product theory does, which is it picks up on the central insight that McGee and Barber talked about, which is seeing through illusion and into reality. The process theory gives you an account of what self-deception is and how you can see through it and into reality so that you can be better connected to yourself, to other people, to the world, and thereby flourish. So I would advocate that in addition, not in competition, but complementary to a product theory, we should be developing a process theory. It tells us what foolishness is, how, how foolishness develops, how we can overcome foolishness, how we can afford flourishing, and then on the basis of that, get into a dialogue with accounts of what wisdom is. So I think that's important. I think, I mean, it, it, the fact that Aristotle's being invoked really says we need to bring in the developmental and transformative aspects of wisdom in a more uh, serious manner. So that's one of my most central criticisms of uh, uh, Bolton Stoniger. The other one, like I said, is they seem to uh, make a mistake around expertise. I would now like to share with you uh, some central criticisms uh, made by a, a really seminal thinker, uh, somebody I've, ha I've had the chance to meet a couple times and interact with, um, and this is Monica Ardelt. I think she did something really important. Uh, she's, the critique she published of Bolton Stoner in 2004 and her ongoing work uh, she's generated uh, one of the wisdom scales that is used experimentally. She's generated a lot of experimental work. Uh, Monica's work is, is, is really 
uh, important and central. Now, I'm going to use some of my language that we've developed in this course to talk about Monica, uh, and I hope it's not imposing on her, but I, 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 I think it's plausible uh, that it's not. Her main criticism of the Bolzenstoniger uh, paradigm or uh, approach is they confuse, this is her criticism, and I agree with it, they're confusing having theoretical knowledge about wisdom with being a wise person. So there's, there's a sense in which there's a bit of a modal confusion uh, going on in the Bolton-Stoninger theory. It's like, I have a lot of knowledge about wisdom. Uh, that doesn't make me wise. So I'm, a, I'm an excellent case in point of that, I, I would think. I mean, I've, I've read a lot of the wisdom literature, both the philosophical and the psychological. I teach on it. I, you know, I'm involved with currently some experimental work, etc. Um, so I think I have quite a bit of theoretical knowledge about wisdom. Um, I would not in any way dare to equate that with the claim that I'm a wise person. Um, well, that knowledge, I think, could be argued to be necessary, I think what uh, Ardelt is clearly pointing to is that it's nowhere near sufficient. It's nowhere near sufficient. And so what I think she's pointing to is the fact that a wise person, and we can think of the Socratic example here about the truth and the, and the transformative relevance needing to be kept together. The wise person must realize these theoretical truths uh, within a process of self-transformation, must realize this within a process of self-transformation. So people that are wise have gone through a process of self-transformation. Uh, they have achieved a significant kind of self-transcendence that allows them to embody and enact these truths rather than just having them in a propositional fashion. So uh, Ardelt is clearly uh, pointing towards something missing, right? the importance of the process of development. She's also import uh, uh, importantly pointing to the way in which wisdom is a, a project of you know, becoming a particular kind of person. And so she, right, a particular kind of person living in a particular kind of world. Right? And so she's directly pointing towards what I've articulated um, in this course as participatory knowing. <clears throat> so she then brings out something very uh, uh, important about this distinction. She makes use uh, this distinction between having knowledge and being wise. And she makes use of a distinction from a, a really important philosopher, John Keeks. Um, I've mentioned him before, done, done some important work on moral wisdom and its relationship to virtue. <clears throat> and Keeks makes a, a very I I important distinction between descriptive knowledge and interpretive knowledge. Which Monica points to. And what Ardelt is uh, pointing to is, of course, that wisdom uh, has to do more with this. So descriptive knowledge is basically your knowledge that you know, uh, the cat is a mammal, uh, your knowledge that the cat 
is a predator or, or something like that. Interpretive knowledge is your ability right, to grasp the significance of your descriptive knowledge. Now that, that's going to be important because that actually turns out to be a central feature um, in most of the theories that are now uh, being developed about what, wi what understanding is and how it uh, differs from knowledge. And I think what Ardelt is pointing to here uh, by invoking Keek's notion of interpretive knowledge right, is the centrality of understanding to wisdom. And of course, grasping the significance is putting us, I'm going to argue later that this, of course, is going to be, have to do with construal, and this is going to have to do about, of course, with uh, relevance, relevance realization. Now, I think that's very important work. And I, I think the fact that <laughs> there's so much happening in this theory, uh, and the thing is it's happening in a, in a very sort of concise fashion. So let's gather what we've got here. We, we, we've got the, the realization that we shouldn't be just talking about having knowledge about wisdom. We should be going through the process of self-transcendence by which we become wise, that that involves, right, um, as I said, a process theory. We're going to need a process theory, not just a product theory. And that what the wise person has above and beyond knowledge, I would call descriptive knowledge, knowledge, and interpretive knowledge, whether that's knowledge, I don't know. But that's at least what many people are considering understanding. And this has to do, as I'm going to argue, with that, that I'm going to argue that grasping the significance of your knowledge is um, uh, you know, good construal that realizes what's relevant. So, Ardelt then talks about the personality characteristics that you should see in uh, the wise person. So, she thinks that if we want to talk about what it is to be a wise person, we shouldn't just be talking about the knowledge, obviously. We should be talking about the kind of characteristics uh, that the wise person has. And that's uh, important because we've already seen the deep connections between uh, wisdom and virtue. So she thinks that there are three ways in which we can judge the relative value, we can grasp the significance of, uh, of our knowledge. There's three domains. <coughs> Mom, that's not right. I don't want to say domain. <coughs> There's three dimensions of um, our personhood that are crucial for being a wise person. She thinks there, and up until now, we've been clearly giving these emphasis, there are cognitive factors. Right. So what are the cognitive factors here? This, of course, is your ability to, to you know, have a comprehension of the significance and meaning of information. Okay, and, and, and not just theoretically. The significance of the information for your development, for your going through a process of self-transcendence and becoming a wise person. Then there are reflective, and I think the distinction here, 
this is picking up a bit on the, the way rationality has this reflective component into it as opposed to intelligence, which is just your ability to grasp what's relevant. So I think that's something that can be integrated quite well with the discussion we had on rationality. So the reflective factor is a, a person who has um, been cultivating wisdom is multi-perspectival. Uh, they're capable <coughs> Excuse me, I don't know what's wrong with my throat. They're capable of a, a engaging in multiple perspectives. They're capable of self-examination, self-awareness, self-insight. So notice again that the, the, the reflection here has an existential import. You, you're taking these perspectives, but you can ultimately right, internalize this perspectival ability onto yourself in self-reflection, self-examination, uh, self-insight. So I think uh, that's very valuable. And then there's an affective component. And I'm doing this because Ardelt clearly thinks that these three are mutually influencing, mutually constraining, uh, causally interacting with each other. Uh, so the affective uh, dimension uh, she talks about in terms of compassion. I've made a case that, the, so uh, because of some of the models she invokes from Buddhism, I don't think this is inappropriate. Uh, I've made a case that the, the, the capacity for agape is um, the best way of understanding uh, compassion. The main idea here is, and this is why I'm invoking agape as opposed to either philia or eros, is because it helps to overcome egocentrism. And you can see how these two are working together, right? How the, this is helping to overcome egocentrism in kind of a powerful way. So, this is sort of overcoming ecocentrism uh, perspectively, and this is overcoming uh, uh, egocentrism attitudinally, and, and in terms of your core motivations, uh, your core set of priorities and preferences, uh, the, the basically the way in which you're caring uh, about uh, the world, and that your caring is directed towards uh, <clears throat> the, the, the flourishing of other uh, persons. So I think that also is an important um, improvement in the theorizing. The fact that Ardelt is clearly giving equal priority to cognitive, I would call, you know, th these are perspectival, and uh, uh, the, pers the perspectival aspects of rationality, and of course the important affective things. And if you remember, <clears throat> this does something also uh, at least implicitly, that uh, we don't have in the Baltzan Stoniger. And so, this is one other criticism I would make on behalf of Monica Ardelt of the uh, Baltzan Stoniger theory, which is agape right, starts to, I've argued, so I'm not attributing this argument to uh, Ardelt, but I'm supplementing it to her theory, because what agape gives is it at least gives a way of trying to talk about meaning in life, the way Wolf talked about it. And I argued that agape helps us to get that kind of connectedness and caring that is, right, is so central to grounding meaning in life. We don't have to ground meaning in life in being subjectively attracted to something that's completely objectively attractive. We just have to be transjectively coupled to Right, to those things we find inherently valuable because of their connection to meaning making, coherence, right, and caring. And so the, 
This allows, well, what it affords, and I would argue enables, uh, Ardelt's theory to do is to connect her account of wisdom to meaning in life in a, pr uh, in a much more direct fashion. That connection to meaning in life is not clear in Boltz and Stoniger. Um, and, and, and if you remember, Wolf argues that you can't reduce meaning in life to morality. So the connection between wisdom and virtue, while central and being uh, discussed well uh, by Schwartz and Sharp and by Boltz and Stoniger, is right, not reducible to, it's not sufficient for the connection between wisdom and meaning in life. By bringing in this affective component uh, and the, the, the idea that we are becoming wise, not just thinking about wisdom, and so the process of identification, the modal existential aspects, Ardelt is doing a lot more with about connecting wisdom to meaning in life. And I think that's uh, very, very important. <clears throat> okay, so, you know, this is sort of understanding in a sense I'm going to help develop later, right, but the, this, the, this ability to pick up on what, you know, to, to realize the significance of your knowledge and, uh, and allow you, and again, in an existential fashion, not just abstract theoretical, but in a way that allows you to I would argue, ultimately see through illusion and into reality so that you can afford your development. Then you, you, that is connected to your reflective capacity, your perspectival knowing, which ultimately could be linked to um, the stuff we saw with Grossman's work and in Berlin, Ber, uh, the Berlin Paradigm of Bolton Stottinger, right? right? The ability to take the perspective of others, being multiple perspectival, and ultimately turn that back on oneself in self-examination, internalize it, right, in, in self-insight, and that those two are also linked uh, to something like a capacity uh, for agape. And I would argue that you need these two for overcoming egocentrism, and it also, um, I, I haven't seen Monica develop this very explicitly in connection, especially with Wolf's work, but there's the real potential here of connecting wisdom to something other than virtue. It should be connected to virtue, but it should also be importantly connected uh, to meaning in life. Okay, break time. Yeah, so... Um, What's up, everybody? I hope you guys are enjoying this so far. I'm sorry, we're a little green. I, che I checked in on the live stream. We're a little we green. Are, it's we okay. We're a little green. We'll, we'll, we'll fix things. Uh, if yeah. You, yeah, br bring, that, bring that green back. Oh, now that. it turns us purple. Oh, no. Minus two or minus four. Let's go ahead and say minus two. Let's just do minus two for now. All right. All right. It, it ain't easy being green. All right, so... Nah, man. We started off with... Um, John's critique of uh, Bolton Stallinger. Stallinger. Um, the first one was the the issue with the word expertise, but the the big issue uh, that he brought up this round was um, there was a mistake at the theoretical level. Um, uh, let's see. Um, yeah, the criticism. It's a product theory opposed. Um, which is like a feature list or That's a list right. of accounts yeah, that omits yeah. the central... Um, we got to bring understanding of perspectival knowing mm -hmm. into wisdom, which we've yeah. learned about in previous episodes. So there is that mistake of the omission at the... Theor uh, um, also a mistake of omission at the theoretical level. Yeah, omission. So, yeah. so but basically... So it's it doesn't, not purposeful is what he's saying. It's it, like, yeah, you know, well, and it doesn't account for the transformative change that you go through. Yes, yes. So um, pro a product theory, just a feature list 
of what wisdom is does not tell us uh, it. You know, the idea of transformational change is lost in this product theory. theory. So you think of people like Jesus, Plato, and Buddha, and what they taught us how to self transcend. This aspect needs to be a part of the understanding of wisdom. So humans are still trying to understand exactly what wisdom is and how it operates in the brain. We need to know this because if we don't figure this out, mm. then the AI that we're developing, intelligence without wisdom to guide it, is going to be a million times more dangerous than. So what uh, Verveke is arguing is we also like and we need a product theory and we need a process theory. Yes. So we need a process theory. So like an account of how one becomes wise. Exactly. Um, Yeah. To account for the self-deception, how we're able to see through illusion to more optimally understand reality. So we need to bring in uh, developmental and transformational processes. Yeah. And and not in a, like a conflicting or competing way, but in addition to. Yeah. Um, So we were introduced with um, Monica. Monica Ardelt, uh, in her criticism of uh, Baltanas's, uh, I'll just call him BNSN right now because I can't remember. Bal- Balton Stallinger. Stallinger's uh, argument. Um, she felt that they were confusing having theoretical knowledge of wisdom with being wise. So, mm-hmm. knowledge of wisdom is not ne- is not necessarily sufficient to becoming wise. And like what Verveke was saying, you know he. He has a lot of knowledge on the processes and, you know, what wisdom looks like and all the components of it, but wouldn't dare call himself wise. Um, mm-hmm. And it, not for any, you know, lack of his knowledge or anything, but it, yet again, it's the process of transcending. How well one can embody and, and yeah. enact. And he has been doing, I think, a pretty good job of sure. enacting it for us as well as he can. And actually, I think he, he does a tremendous job of doing that. But he does make a great point there. A wise person must be able to realize these truths about themselves and life in a process, through a process of self-transformation, mm-hmm. and then learned more about them through the enacting of them. So uh, he brings in Keeks yeah, in so... his moral work on moral wisdom and virtue and the distinction yeah. uh, between descriptive and interpretive knowledge. Yeah, and so like your interpretive knowledge would be understanding mm-hmm. the significance of your descriptive knowledge. Yes, and the ability could... to grasp the significance of your mm-hmm. own descriptions. And the description is literally something like a cat is a mammal, right? Yeah. Or a cat is a predator. So Or that or that's a tiger. And then re- that, like inter- that's a interpretive nem- yeah, is that's like, significant. Oh, that's yeah, that might eat yeah. me and might eat my kids. So the interpretive know. is the ability to grasp the significance yeah. of the description. So our our delt then talks about the personality characteristics of a wise person Mm -hmm. um, in three ways um, to gauge the significance of knowledge. Mm -hmm. The the first is well the cognitive fact uh, factors you know your Mm -hmm. your comprehension of the significance of meaning uh, for the development of uh, self transcendence and then you have the reflective factor. Mm-hmm. which is uh, the multi-perspectival, self-examining, taking something from outside and bringing it in. Capacity for self-awareness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ability to take on multiple perspectives. Yeah. And then there's the affective components. In, um, and he's saying this is compassion, agape, the love that makes pe- persons out of just the constituent, uh, you know, because like, so you have the nature of something, mm-hmm. and then you have an instance of that nature, and then you have um, I, uh, the, uh, I forget what the word comes from, but persopa is the the personhood of that thing. So it's like, mm-hmm. you know, I have the nature of a pen, and then I can have multiple instances of that nature. Mm-hmm. Neither of those are the person 
Yeah, so like a cat, you know, it has the nature of a cat, but then like, there's that cat. That cat has that kind of personality. Well, and that cat, and then on top of it, and uh, the, and then using using the term person to mean something like face, if you will, mm. um, not just mask, but face. Mm. You know, really get, gives them a face you can look at and identify with, mm. and you know, yeah. kind kind yeah. of end. So this agape really helps helps us over you know overcome our egocentrism within um by using the cognitive factors and the reflective factors and, and this the, is the agape kind of love which yeah, is the yeah. unconditional kind yes, of love yeah. like the kind that jesus tried to teach uh, us par- par- parental or uh, f- uh f- the kind of love one has will. for their own yeah. child yeah that's right yeah. yeah and so john it's like a selfless kind of love to- truly unconditional yeah and then john's critique uh, last critique of uh uh, BNS is, um, which is not clear. Agape is not clear, and no, and, and and the fact that it helps ground us into life and meaning is not necessarily clear in their, um, what would you call it, in their examination of what wisdom is. That's right, and that, and we definitely need this. So I, I'm glad that he brings up uh, Monica, Monica Ardell, yeah, because. These three ways to grasp the significance or understand the relative value um, of the dimensions of personhood required for wisdom, it's it's really helpful. And the characteristics, the fact that we should talk about what characteristics a a wise person has, not just the knowledge they've accumulated, but what characteristics, how do they carry themselves? Because agape, this unconditionality, it helps us overcome egocentrism, it's an effective way of expressing ourselves and engaging with the meaning and basically engendering meaning in life, a deeper sense of connectedness with what matters the most to us in a good, healthy way. And it grounds us in that meaningfulness. And, and I guess like, you know, wisdom, wisdom isn't necessarily something that you have that you do nothing with. I I don't Mm -hmm. think it would be wise to do nothing with it. That's the, right. the act of helping others that's a really good way to say it. go yeah. go past and go beyond is the wise thing to do yeah um that's why it's like you know the the wisest people are always sharing you know what they know how they know really trying to you know like you know like the wise they're trying to enact change to help their students really grow they, through it they really care yeah. so the, this change, is the yeah. affect affective component of um, ways to grasp significance, understand relative value, the dimensions of personhood required for wisdom. Um, it it's, shows up in how one cares and directs their caring towards the flourishing of others. So agape, it connects us to meaning in life, but we can't reduce this understanding of meaning in life or the affective aspect of how we grasp significance to morality alone, to mm-hmm. the knowledge of morals mm-hmm. and what's good. The mere knowledge and having a sense of morality is one thing, but the ability to act on that morality yeah. in your everyday life, that's the real key. So it needs to not and, just be ideas of what wisdom is, but knowledge of it through practice. Yeah, and, and participatory and, knowledge. You gained it through participation. Yeah, and being able to use the virtues in their proper amounts when you need it. Mm-hmm. Like, particularly with morals, it's like, you know, like say, a moral like killing is bad, yeah? But if somebody's coming to kill you and yours for no reason other than killing you and yours, well, you go ahead and kill them back. Right. Um, you know, the the wise warrior will understand the difference between, you know, a war of aggression and a war of defense, if you will. Because we have so many stories about that. You know, these are just 
wisdom stories, really. The hero's yes, journey is just a wisdom story. They really um, are. They're just there to help instill us with wisdom. Yeah. Well, fam, I think that catches us up so far. We're about halfway through here. So let's go ahead and ride this downhill slope. And Wee. we will see you guys at the end of this episode. What are some of my criticisms of Ardell's work? Uh, well, it, uh, it clearly invokes transformational processes. It, it doesn't really incorporate a theory of transformative experience or an account of it, uh, you know, uh, like, uh, like we have in L.A. Paul's work. Um, it doesn't really give us a processing theory. It points towards the, it, it, and this is important, it points towards the need for a processing theory, but it doesn't give us an account of what th that process looks very much like. And <clears throat> it doesn't have an independent account of foolishness. It doesn't really tell us very much what foolishness is. And that's something needed if we're going to, I would argue, to have a good process uh, theory of wisdom. There is an untapped potential. This isn't so much a criticism as, uh, um, um, as um, encouragement that there's an untapped potential, uh, given this theoretical machinery, of connecting uh, wisdom to meaning in life in a way uh, that complements the connections uh, between wisdom and, uh, and virtue. So I think these are all uh, some very important features about this. Um, I, I've already indicated, you know, grasping the significance, I think this points towards RR. We've already talked a lot about agape um, and the relationships I tried to draw between it and relevance realization. And of course, I've already indicated this is bringing in the recursive uh, aspects, it's bringing in uh, perspectival knowing. And there's also, uh, there's also, at least in the background sense, uh, the participatory knowing because one is, right, one is coming to know oneself differently as one is coming to know the world differently because one is going through this inherent uh, transformational process. So we're, we're seeing how the theory of wisdom is, is sort of building up. It's becoming more complex. It's bringing in uh, different aspects, uh, you know, uh, different kinds of, the different kinds of knowing. Uh, there is, you know, quite uh, important aspects of relevance realization in Schwartz and Sharp, uh, clearly in Baltz and Stoninger, um, quite strongly implied in the central role, at least in the cognitive aspects, although I would argue also in the reflective and the affective uh, aspects of uh, Ardell's theory, relevance realization is playing an important uh, role. And we can see how it's getting uh, ram like we, we see how it's getting sort of developed and specified uh, into uh, and connected to other important cognitive processes. All right. I think the next important theory we should turn to um, is uh, Sternberg. So, and this, this is because you can see Sternberg's work running throughout the history. Robert Sternberg's work uh, the, running through the history of the psychology of wisdom. Robert Sternberg basically really gets this off the ground with his pivotal work, not only in his own theories, but um, the tireless work he's done in putting together anthologies, various anthologies uh, on wisdom or related anthologies on foolishness. 
Why Smart People Can Be So Stupid is one of the best anthologies on the psychology of foolishness uh, I've seen. Right. He's also been tireless um, in trying to connect the psychology of wisdom to pedagogy. He gets, right, again, something that is, is important and central, and we see it crucially in the ancient theories of wisdom. It's not so clearly present in the current psychological theories, but the deep connection between wisdom and teaching, that's, of course, clearly the case um, in Socrates. It's clearly the case in Jesus of Nazareth. It's clearly the case in Buddhism that there, like in the work of the Buddha, w that there's a deep connection between uh, wisdom and education. And so he's been very tireless, not only sort of theoretically pointing out that connection, but trying to work out, if you'll allow me, I mean this word in a complimentary sense, trying to engineer uh, some psychotechnology, sets of practices for how to bring the cultivation of wisdom into the educational domain. So, uh, and so for many reasons, uh, Sternberg is a pivotal figure in the wisdom, in the wisdom um, I was going to call it the wisdom industry. That sounds like an industry for producing wisdom. Um, in, in the community of people who are endeavoring to come up with a psychological, cognitive scientific, even neuroscientific theory of wisdom. Uh, there are some people who are pursuing this. Meeks and Jest are one. Other people are pursuing the neuroscientific aspects, but I'm not going to go into that in great detail right now. Um, I'm trying to concentrate on the psychological theories uh, precisely because they are the ones that are most uh, directly uh, accessible and relevant to trying to respond to the meaning crisis. So in 1998, um, Sternberg, he had an earlier theory where he was talking, and he's come back to this many times. He has a book where he tries to talk about the relationships between intelligence, wisdom, and creativity. Um, and I'm, trying, I, I'm trying to follow that up in, a, in my own way trying to show you the relationships between intelligence, rationality, wisdom, insight, etc. So definitely influenced by Sternberg in that way. <clears throat> but he, uh, he then uh, came up with a, a, a more, I, I, don't, I, don't, I want to be complimentary of the newer theory without being completely dismissive of the older. I would say the newer theory is sort of more coherent uh, more tightly integrated, more explicated. So in 1998, he came up with what he's called and maintained a, a balanced theory of wisdom. That's actually the title of the 1998 article, a balanced theory of wisdom. So the notion of balance is going to play a crucial uh, role in this theory. Now, what's he, Sternberg uh, starts by talking about Sophia and Phronesis and episteme, uh, which is at the core of epistemological, that's, that's what I would call propositional knowledge. He calls it scientific understanding. He quickly drops that as not being particularly uh, relevant to wisdom, not because knowledge is unimportant, because everybody knows the centrality of knowledge to wisdom. That's why we're spending so much time on getting knowledge in this course. But everybody pretty much also understands that wisdom is something above and beyond. Uh, scientific, theoretical, propositional knowledge. Okay, so that, that's sort of easily understandable. He also, like I said, he invokes um, uh, Sophia, and talks about a sort of connection with contemplation, and phronesis and practical wisdom. He zeroes in, like Schwartz and Sharp, on phronesis. I think that's, again, a little bit too much uh, of a neglect of the important role of Sophia. 
He also draws on Polanyi's idea of tacit knowledge. Remember, we talked about that when we talked about um, subsidiary awareness. Um, and he talks about uh, the, the, the tacit knowledge having, having to do with our procedural abilities. It's relevant to attaining goals. It's not explicitly taught. Uh, we experience it intuitively. And so he's in, he, he is invoking all kinds of important aspects about implicit learning, intuition, um, and procedural knowing. I, I think that's, that's good. I, I think he needs to also add to that techne, what, what are some important psychotechnologies, especially since I can, I think, uh, in fairness, say that he is trying to engineer such psychotechnologies in his pedagogical endeavors. I also think he needs to uh, try to do what Aristotle did, which is integrate how phronesis, which is largely happening in an implicit, intuitive, sort of S1 kind of fashion, is integrated with Sophia, uh, which can have a more reflective, uh, perhaps a more S2 uh, aspect to it. All right, that being said, what's the core theory? Well, the idea is we, and, and this is important because it's just sort of directly invoked, right? He invoked the, 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 the tacit knowledge is, is also, right, uh, it's, it's used as a way of, he, he starts talking about it as tacit understanding. So the, the tacit knowing, the tacit, right, the implicit learning it is also a way in which Sternberg tries to invoke the capacity for understanding. Now, that isn't very well explicated in uh, the account. I, I'm thinking, uh, I'm trying, I'm speculating I'm, uh, uh, that what I think he's trying to get at is that the machinery by which we sort of grasp the significance of our knowledge and um, use it to directly and intuitively cope with the world is a significant component of understanding. So I, I think that's why uh, the shift is there. He then talks, and, and, and the way, the reason why I want to invoke that is because the, what the tacit understanding is doing, it, it's again so pregnant with aspects of relevance realization. Because he talks about the understanding guiding our ability to adapt to, listen to that language, to adapt to situations, to shape them. And that doesn't necessarily mean physical. It can mean how we construe them, how we formulate our problems. And the selection of environments, the selection, the moving around, the exploring or exploiting. This is all uh, very much. Uh, doing with relevance realization. He talks about these abilities are needed to deal with practical problems. Uh, this is why he's emphasizing wisdom not as the same thing as theoretical knowledge. He's picking up on the same point that uh, Monica Erdelt did. But he said, these practical problems, quote, are unformalized or in need of re... Sorry, I misquoted. And that misquotation was an important mistake. These problems are unformulated much more relevant to problem formulation, are unformulated or in need of reformulation. And so he's invoking problem formulation here. 
Uh, he's, of course, with the notion of reformulation, he's invoking the notion of insight. And so we can see, again, the relevance realization machinery uh, being invoked. So he, his theory, quote, uh, invo involves, sorry, his theory involves, quote, views, let me start that again. His theory, quote, views wisdom as inherent in the interaction between an, and an individual and a situational context. It's inherently transjective. It's about fitting. In fact, he then goes on to say, wisdom depends on the fit of a wise solution to its context. So notice the fittedness, right? All, all of the language that we've developed is being directly invoked. It's being put at the center of the theory. And I'm going to argue that what he's, arg what, he, what he's invoking when he's invoking balance is he's invoking optimization. And I, of course, argued that relevance realization is an optimization theory. So the, what's w sort of beautiful about the theory um, is he gives a, a, a schematic diagram of it. And I'll, I'll, I'll draw this for you. So here's our tacit understanding. That's that implicit processing, etc. Remember, we talked about that so much in connection with flow. And what's happening is it is dealing with a, trying to balance your interests. balance your interests, what you're interested in, what you find salient, important. And he talks about three kinds. There's the intrapersonal, the interpersonal, and the extrapersonal. So this, of course, is interest between people. This is interest within a person. So you can think of uh, Plato here trying to get your various centers and what they're interested in coordinated together, and extrapersonal. Uh, having to do, I think this is ultimately how you're connected to yourself, how you're connected to other people, and how you're connected to the world. I think he's invoking, at least implicitly, the, the three dimensions of connectedness that go into uh, meaning in life. And so I think at least implicitly, we can make a clear argument here that he's tr trying to connect wisdom to meaning in life. And that this capacity for sort of zeroing in on relevant information is playing an important uh, role in that. And, and the reason why I say that is because it's not clear to me why the arrows only go one way. It seems to me that I, well, this is a criticism I would make. I think the arrows right, should go both ways because uh, there's, there's also going to be feedback. Uh, but anyways, they feed forward to the three things that are clearly, I would argue, RR, which is right the adapting the shaping and the selecting. I'll come back to that notion. The triangles are meant to indicate balance. And I've tried to indicate to you that um, I think I'll put that down here and we'll come back to it. That balance has to do with optimization. OK, so what's going on here is, right? This is a balance of your response to right, the environmental context. 
So this is balancing your interests, and this is balancing your response. Okay, like I said, I, that's pretty clear, um, our relevance realization stuff. This then is directed towards, he argues, the common good. Here again is where I have to step aside from the value he's articulating and the theory he's generating. I agree, especially within a liberal democratic framework, a framework deeply influenced by Christianity, that the common good is an overarching value for us. I'm not sure that that is going to be universally shared by all people who I think can reasonably be deemed uh, uh, wise individuals. Um, so if you're in a culture that's <clears throat> what this means, maybe you have to bend this so much then it's then trivial. It doesn't mean, maybe it doesn't mean common in the sense of shared by everyone. Uh, it might be, you know, you, you're in some sort of hierarchical, feudal society and the common good isn't that everybody equally benefits from it. It might be more that, uh, that you know, everybody is working well together, some sort of justification like that. I'm not trying to justify a hierarchical society or anything like that. I want you clearly to understand, I think this is an important value. I'm just concerned here that Sternberg is being anachronistic here, and he's using one of our central values and attributing it to every person who has been wise. I'm not, I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, I think you could make a case that that's clearly the case in Jesus or, or, or the Buddha. I'm not sure that it's the case uh, for Marcus Aurelius and all of the Stoics. Uh, it's clearly not the case for Epictetus. So um, I, I'm hesitant about putting that up there. Uh, I, I, I'm going to advise that there's something I, I think more, more broadly comprehensive. I think the things that we should put up here uh, are things that w there's already a consensus on a, a broader notion of virtue. Oh, sorry. <laughs> that really makes it sound like I'm making an emphasis here. Right? That what we're, connect, what we're re really concerned with is virtue, right? And because of this, I think, and meaning in life. Okay. I have changed. That is not in his model. I have changed it because of, again, I'm worried that his particular term is uh, anachronistic and idiosyncratic to our particular uh, historical cultural context. It's important to also note that running alongside of this is um, values and then arrows that are kind of indeterminately pointing. So trying to interpret what that means is, is something like uh, the wise person is being constrained by values. What those values are are not clear. I, I, again, is it that we're talking about things like meaning in life and the virtues, perhaps? So another criticism I have is that this part of the theory, this part of the diagram, the, the way it's operating is unclear. 
it might be something as basic as the wise person is, uh, is working normatively. They're trying to get the best. And then this is uh, not, that, um, not that interesting a claim because uh, wisdom is itself a normative notion. And therefore, the fact that the wise person is being governed by uh, normativity um, is, is almost definitional. If it, if it means something specific, like the wise person has a specific set of values, uh, that needs to be explicated and defended. So I don't know what, quite what to do with that. So I, I, I have to sort of leave it somewhat inert. What I would argue, and I think what these triangles indicate, and what the language indicates is the, the balance is used to adapt, shape, and select environments. And what is this balance? He, he argues it's something like Piaget's equilibration between assimilation and accommodation. He argues that it's a balance between coping with novelty and proceduralization. Do you see what, he's, what the balance here is? It's balance that is directly invoking a lot of the machinery we've talked about, about relevance realization. And he's clearly not invoking sort of a spatial balancing. He's invoking optimization. He's invoking optimization. So I think this theory is also a theory um, that is deeply integratable with a lot of uh, the material we've been discussing. Uh, relevance realization um, is, is playing a key role in terms uh, of the balancing and the, the, this uh, process here, also down here at the level of grasping the significance, uh, at least intuitively, of our, our knowledge and the patterns we've picked up from the environment. There's deep connections to, or at least there's a real potential in Sternberg's theory for making deep connections to meaning in life because, as I said, I think this is pretty clearly how you connect to yourself, how do you connect to others, how do you connect to the world, right? There's important possible connections, possibly, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm unsure, between this and uh, virtue and meaning in life. Yeah. So this is all very good. And like I said, overall, this is clearly a, a dynamic optimization, and it's invoking something very much like relevance realization. All right. What are some of criticisms? Well, I'll leave that on the board for now. What are some of the criticisms of Sternberg? This is still, in the end, a product theory, not a process theory. It doesn't make the sort of, it, I mean, this avoids equating wisdom with expertise, and that's, that's a powerful advantage of this theory. But there, like I said, this, this domain, the values, unexplicated, it, it could either be uh, a, a somewhat trivial, because it's almost tautological that the wise person is acting according to normative standards, or it could be a much more controversial claim that specific values are involved. I don't know. I've already told you why I don't think that the common good um, is the goal of all wise people. That seems anachronistic uh, to me in an important way. The theory could clearly be improved by getting clearer about the nature of tacit uh, implicit learning, getting clearer about optimization, getting clearer about relevance realization, getting clearer about how relevance realization connects uh, to meaning in life. Uh, so all of those things would be developed 
if one started to develop a process theory and not just a product theory. So uh, Sternberg needs an independent theory of, of foolishness. Now he has a theory of foolishness, but it's not independent. His theory of foolishness is basically foolishness is uh, an imbalance in these things. So what foolishness is is basically a lack of wisdom. And again, while that's definitionally the case, what you need is an independently constructed theory of wisdom. A theory, uh, sorry, a theory of foolishness. You need a theory of foolishness that takes in hand right, the centrality of seeing through illusion and into reality, that has an independent account of how we're self-deceptive, how we're self-destructive, how that operates, how that unfolds, because we see that in many of the ancient wisdom theories, and how we can ameliorate that. So I think that that, that is missing in, uh, in a central way uh, from Sternberg's work. Okay, so I think in the end, what I want to do is try and draw all of these together. I've tried to indicate important points of improvement one, one from one theory with respect to the other, relative strengths and weaknesses. I've also tried to uh, indicate powerful points of convergence um, and connection to uh, the ideas of relevance realization that we've been developing um, in this course because that's part of the big plausibility diagram to show how the machinery of relevance realization right, can help to explain what it is to be wise and help to explain, uh, as I'm going to argue, what it is to become wise, to give a processing theory. So we want to take that up in the next account. And I'm, I'm somewhat hesitant about that uh, uh, because <clears throat> you know, I, I, I'm, I'm sort of okay with you know offering you proposals. Uh, well, I'm not. I mean, I'm very cautious about proposals uh, about consciousness and other things like that. But you know, we've got proposals about higher states of consciousness and insight and, and, and that. And I've tried to make arguments for that. And I'm going to make an argument that and that, that I have made with Leo Ferraro about wisdom. Uh, but there. It, 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 it's something, it borders on hubristic to talk a, a, about this in that way. But I, I'm going to try and draw on this and at least show you um, a plausible way in which we can uh, draw all of this material together with the theory of relevance realization and come up with an account of wisdom. And then um, I think uh, also subject that theory, at least the, the version that was published in 2013, to some important uh, criticisms. Um, and, uh, and then hopefully then be in a place where we can fold it back into uh, the connections between wisdom, the cultivation of wisdom, the cultivation of meaning in life, the cultivation, the pursuit, are these the right verbs of enlightenment, how these are all connected, and how that can be situated into the larger project of awakening from the meaning crisis. Thank you very much for your time and attention. Meow, 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 meow. Meow, rough, rough, rough. Meow, rough, rough, rough. Meow, rough, rough, rough. Yeah. All right, so um, John's criticism of our delt. 
Um, yes. So yes. he feels like she doesn't um, incorporate an account of transcendence. She does not. So There's no lacking theory or the account of the theory. transformative experience. Yeah. So it doesn't give us a process theory. It at least um, points us to a process theory, though. It doesn't account for foolishness either. Yeah, it points towards it, but doesn't. Yeah, mm-hmm. it doesn't. And yeah. then there's an untapped potential in this idea mm-hmm. of connecting meaning in life with ideas of wisdom and virtue. So I, I love how Verbeek is so careful and try not to speak down about his fellow scientists. Well, yeah, so he, he and, recognizes there's an untapped potential here, is the way he puts yeah. it, and I think that, well, that's... Well, particularly since, you know, really his intent him. is combining all these theories into his own theories and other theories to get a better theory. Mm-hmm. And he knows he's um, standing on the shoulders of giants and working at, in the present with many colleagues on trying to finally finish this process of developing a theory of wisdom. So, so grasping, right? Points well, um, grasping how grasping points to relevance realization mm. are dealt um, points this out the agape mm. par- uh, the participatory aspect of relevance realization comes out in her theory um, coming to know self and the world differently through the transformative process and then the, of course there's the perspectival so we have the cognitive aspects the eff- affective aspects and then what was that third one the perspectival, which covers the uh, yeah. cognitive, reflective, or yeah, oh, yeah, reflective, the reflective. and ag- okay. agopic. Yep. So the perspectival covers that reflective. And then we get to Robert Sternberg on uh, history of the psychology of wisdom, all the work that he's done, plus the, how he's helped connect this with uh, – Theories connect of wisdom, wisdom to theories pedagogy. of wisdom with actually actual teaching, yes. with education, with pedagogy. Yeah. So, and that's what uh, uh, pedagogy means is, is the teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, um, 1998, his theory, a balanced theory of wisdom, is released. And he focuses a lot on Sophia, Phronesis, and. And the key word being balance, mm-hmm. um, even though. And the balance So, them. one thing, though, um, Verveke does critique, though, is he still focuses a little too much on the phrenesis and neglects the Sophia aspect yeah, of it as yeah. well. He also includes an ep- epis, uh, epistemological, how do you say that? Epistemological. Epistemological, you did it. Epist- when you do it without thinking, it works. <laughs> so he talks about epistemy as well in this theory, but he drops that early yeah. on because you know everybody studying, studying the theory already knows the centrality of knowledge. You know, mm-hmm. So epistemy as in education gained knowledge but also recognizes uh the above and beyond necessity of the practice of transformative practices so he uh neglects sophia somewhat he does zero in a lot on phrenesis um he's not going to the expert fallacy yeah yeah he he introduces us well so he recognizes procedural knowing yeah um well which is the tacit knowledge the tacit um, knowledge so what he, he calls tacit knowledge is you know knowledge on the periphery it's procedural intuitive it just happens mm-hmm. um so how phrenesis integrates oh, but with Sophia. verveke thinks he should add some new psychotechnologies and needs to add to Sophie, expound Sophia, this. uh Sophia back into this he, so, more so, of it yeah yes. yeah so his theory is uh invoke the idea that tacit knowledge as a uh, invoke the idea that tacit knowledge is a way of understanding. Um, so the machinery of knowledge is significant. 
um, covers to how we our grasp. Understanding. Yeah, he's yeah. trying to use this Verbeke thanks to cover how we grasp significance. So it appears yeah. that he is again the, the, uh, uh, relevance realization. It's kind of like relevance. That. It, it, it yeah. Happens so Verbeke's theory of relevance realization again ties all of these different yeah. theories up that we see from all, all of these different masters studying, you know, the theory of wisdom and trying to figure out how to ex explain it. Yeah, so so here we are. So relevant realization, the guiding, how it guides, so the tacit understanding or tacit knowledge guides our ability to adapt to situations to shape them. And then it also focuses on the selection, the exploring, the exploiting of our environments. Yeah, and we and we do this because we need to deal with unformal, uh, unformulated problems mm -hmm. that need to be formulated. Yes. Um, yeah. Yet yet again, there is a need. Um, you know, what was previous episodes, what was it called? A, um, well, there's uh, a need for insight. Yeah. Or, like, yeah, there's, there's the need for it. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so Sternberg is recognized and insight yeah. is important. So here again, we're seeing, so relevance realization is a theory that Verveke puts forward that recog that attempts to explain how human beings recognize intelligence. This is key to developing wisdom in completing the process of actual AGI. Well, and also like, like, you know, a theory of how we realize what is relevant, how not, we, how humankind know, not does what this. is yeah. relevant, but how we, how realize do human beings what is relevant? Yeah. Do this. And it's something that we've never been able to figure out. It's central to understanding conscious awareness. One of the great problems that mankind is still yet to solve. Yeah, so, here so we are. In, in so relevance realization again is being invoked. Yeah, so balance some kind of machinery that helps us gain insight and realize what is relevant to us in every moment because there's infinite knowledge around us. How do you realize yeah. what to focus in on? Your awareness is could be taken in so much information at once. How do you know where to take your next step in life without having a sense of what is relevant to you at all times? And we do have a sense of relevance. So So in this theory, um when Relevance when we use the, when we use the word balance, we're meaning optimization. So to bring mm -hmm. in you know vernacular from uh, Verveke's previous episodes, um, and he starts out with tacit understanding, which mm -hmm. then moves up into a balancing of interests, and you have your self interests, your people interests, and then the world around you. So you got mm -hmm. your interpersonal interests your in intro personal your self-interest and then your intrapersonal how the self interacts with the world your extra personal extra excuse me yeah. extra yeah. yeah extra personal and then that moves into your balanced responses so you mm -hmm. know your responses to the environment and you're adapting you're shaping and you're selecting yep you know and this 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 this, this it's all in trade-off relationships yeah. And this response, you know, you know the, the response is a response to cope with yep. any given situation or problem, right? Yep. And then we had come to a contentious word, which is the common good. Mm -hmm. And Verveke doesn't think that... Um, He's, he might be a little bit off here, Sternberg. Yeah, well, it, you know, it, it, it may not be applicable to all cultures and all, all people. and all times at, and yeah, all, all moments. Times, yeah, so, and wisdom is always context-dependent yeah. whilst so, maintaining some kind of generality to so it. So instead of common good, Verveke uses the term virtue and meaning in life. Mm -hmm. And then... So the common sense of what is virtuous and a common sense of meaningful, yeah. what is meaningful in life. 
is and, something that human beings also do have. So and then that w- might be the fundamental. And perhaps. then within the, this this um, schema on one side, there's values and there's you know, arrows pointing at it, mm-hmm. which is kind of unclear for Vivek. He's like, you know, what exactly does this mean? It could mean a lot of different things. It could be, you know, uh, the values shape these balances or you have to have certain values for these balances or so it's just not clear enough it's not clear enough yeah just yeah. tacit so, understanding and it's pointing up to the the triad of the different balances the self-interest the interest in others and then the interest in the world the extra personal and then how we select shape and adapt is another triangle yeah. and that goes towards and the common good he's saying that all of these are they should have arrows pointing yeah, both ways they, back and forth because yeah. they are all all interconnecting yeah. and intern forming yeah. And um, so there's some clarity issues with this, but what he is seeing and saying is, you know, this this has to do with the optimi- optimization of interests and responses mm-hmm. um, of somebody or peoples within their environment to enhance um, uh, me- uh, virtue and meaning in life. Essentially, like if you're to break it down, you're op- trying to optimize you know not just the you know interests and the responses but within mm-hmm. the interests and the responses mm-hmm. and because they both affect each other back you know backward and forward mm-hmm. um and underlying this is your relevance realization is your you know ta- what we're using the word tacit understanding or tacit knowledge what sternberg right. was using that yeah. word for you mm-hmm. so yeah the tacit understanding it does seem to point to that sense of what's relevant yeah, that is almost certainly what I think that he's got that right. Yeah, and so this this is a good theory, but again, it's still unfortunately um, it's just still, a product theory. It's just not a product theory, theory. Yeah. yeah, and so, it's not clear. Yeah, so what is the what is the balance between the coping with novelty and the versus the process of proceduralization that we go through? He certainly is invoking optimization. We recognize relevance realizations playing a key role once again in another theory of wisdom. And the connections to meaning in life are there. So well, a dynamic optimization that points to relativizations, though, is still a product theory, not a process. So he still needs an independent theory of foolishness. We're missing that because he you can't just yeah. say that. In, and in his account of foolishness, he does give one, Sternberg. He states that it's a lack of wisdom. Well, that's unfortunately a circular definition. You still need to account for what foolishness is in, in higher detail. And then to draw it all together... Um, to highlight the powerful points of convergence and demonstrate how relevance realization well, I think that's helps what, us cultivate I, I, I wisdom. I think that's is, what Viveki was saying. Actually, he that's wa- what he wants, wants to, to do with with yeah, not what next could be done yes. with this, but what he wants to do is to draw not just this theory, but also the other theories we've been we've been talking about um, together and combine them with relevance realization to help explain what it is to become wise. Yes. To yes. really explain not the what is wisdom, but what it is to become wise. Yes. And how an to active process. Yeah. And how to fold that process of becoming wise back in on itself into the cultivation of meaning in life, deeper meaning in life and the pursuit of enlightenment to increase our self transcendence, our self transformation. Well, and also do it, do it in a way that is, in, in a way that is going to be bountiful and helpful and well, and engaging also, for and, others. And also be applicable throughout time and, and yes, yes. Be, beyond time and beyond culture and beyond yes. personal sentiment. 
Mm-hmm. You know, so mm-hmm. something that is, regardless of where you come from, what you are, anything, it is still can be applied. So it's transculturally. Well, it, well, kind of like, you know, science, like certain aspects, you know, like if you build a certain machine and you build it the right way, it doesn't matter what language you speak or no, yada, it's yada, 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 where you are. It does it. It does, it does the, the thing, thing it's supposed to do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if it does the thing better than the previous things that the yeah. other, you know, whatever culture has, then it's well, you know, it's, something it's, that, of course, any culture is going to want to adopt. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, like, you know, uh, smithing with iron, you know, and um, is better than, you know, now that we know how to smith with iron. And if you learn how to smith with iron, you're going to have something that's better than just a stone axe or a stone hammer. It mm-hmm. just works. Mm-hmm. All you have to do is learn mm-hmm. the process of it and start to apply it. Um, and ultimately, too, this is going to be used to create a responsible AI that's not going to turn us all into paper clips or, you know, whatever it is. So it's mm-hmm. like, it has to even work with something that's so completely alien, which artificial intelligence is completely alien to human intelligence where fleshy right. organisms, it is silica and electrons and numbers, uh, thinks in, you know, we have four dimensions. If you include time, a computer could be capable of thinking simultaneously. And I don't know, infinite dimensions and it does it all in zero and ones somehow yeah or well at some point in time we'll go beyond zero and ones and the qubits and and probably even beyond that but you know such is the nature of science it always goes further than we thought if you look at the old magazines from back in the the science magazines from way 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 back when if like what would it be like in the year 2000 there's like you know like people flying personal dirigibles that are the size of like you know surfboards and they think we have all this, but they w- there's no realization of the cell phone. They'd be like, yeah, you got a TV in your car where you can talk face-to-face with somebody. It's like, yeah, I got a tablet. I got a phone that opens up into a tablet that I can do that yeah. on. Yeah. That can also do everything else. <laughs> you know, our, like... our physical evolution got us this far, so hopefully our uh, spiritual evolution can get us to the next level and help us survive with the level of intelligence and technological capacity that we have these days because we got some double-edged swords around us and they're quite mighty, and we're not so great at wielding them wisely. So that's that's the name of the game, fam. What are we going to do to help ameliorate this meaning crisis? What can we do beyond the hacking of limbs and the mere treating of symptoms? How do we get to the root of this issue? Yeah, how do, how we... do we help ourselves and those around us that we care and love about, I love, have love for? How do we help ourselves and everybody awaken from the meaning crisis? Yeah. How we do it? How we go and do it? I think we're going to do it in some really beautiful ways. There's going to be a lot of creativity that is going to come waterfalling and unfurling out of the world. Out of a lot of people, I think we're going to see some bright points of light start sparking up all over the place and our ingenuity, our creative capacity, music, <laughs> Sorry, art. The, the imagery I got for that was, you know, like you're dark in the woods and then you just see a bunch of lighters light up <laughs> with the cherries and joints everywhere. <laughs> Bright sparks of light. Well, you know, I, I think there will be some deep social, cultural realizations that we're going to have in groups and some of those will happen at cult, at cultural events like festivals on large scales where groups of people are solving deep and difficult problems within themselves also within a group context you know and you know maybe some kind of argument happens and well, then, and that's the wider where, that's where we're gonna have to be careful yes, town city state nation responsible level, and then now global level that we're on we have to learn to have these conversations 
Yeah, but when you know we start getting out in the world and getting people together to do that, we need to be a lot more responsible than we were the last time we did it with you know the whatever cultural revolution and the hippies and all that stuff because there are things that we know now that we can avoid mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. we should you know mm -hmm. like you know like festivals are nice and everything but there's a reason why we can't just love each other and live in tents in a field you know what I mean yeah, <laughs> like, forever right yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then run run the uh yeah. The, all the all the music and the lighting and everything off of gasoline generators you know or yeah. diesel but you know it's, yep. it's still growing pains all that uh, accepting responsibility at, at, as one gathers the ability to respond um, hindsight's 2020 and I, I think the hippies did as well as they could oh, yeah. considering you know the mass good, understanding of humanity of at that point in history oh dude yeah i mean there's some incredible ideas that came out of the 60s and 70s and uh you know they're they're still sweeping around the world today. You know AA it was one just one thing yeah. that came out of that. If you guys don't know, the founder of AA uh, developed that theory uh, during a, an acid trip in and the middle of the came, night. Came to God. Came to God and came came into a deep realization of of how to formulate a process to help people uh, maintain abstinence from something that they have realized that they don't have control over so they learn to choose not and give over their need to the higher being of their own understanding and then they give them a token for everything and what that yeah. token is is it symbolizes something that has way more meaning than you can just say yeah yeah and there's yeah. the communal aspect of it and the learning to be open and honest and sharing um honest with oneself and with a group of people and then that helps you be able to manifest that in the wider world. Uh, we got, of course, the ideas of agape were very strong during the hippie movement, peace and love. Mm -hmm. uh, the anti-war movement was very strong, was civil bit, rights. I think there was know. a bit of a confusion between philia, uh, eros, and agape at some point in time. Drugs will do that to all you, through right? The different aspects of love oh, were God. certainly being confused during that time. Yeah, the free love thing didn't work out so well. But, yeah, well, that and also, you know, what it is to have, you know, the... The friendship, you know, the, the, the mm. um, you know, the, you know, the, the filial love, the yeah. filial love and the agopic love to be able to, you know, because sometimes, you know, like ultimately you'd want to get to agape, but first you have to start with like, you know, a fraternity, a family, mm -hmm. like a grouping of people that knows each other to. We really did have to learn know. how to love again, though, because yeah. we had and, you know, I mean, the hippies are known for being nature loving and this it's because mm -hmm. we had become re we became disconnected from earth and our relationship with the life cycle of this planet well you know right before and that you so know, there was kind of a, a longing a calling to go back time, you know yeah like that was the yeah. age of make everything out of plastic mm -hmm. go to convenience as it way too far and like you know what am i saying now we wrap organic fruit in plastic mm -hmm. uh, but anyway oh yeah big chain know. grocery stores and everything all that stuff just started in the early 1900s you know yeah. it wasn't that long after it that there's the 60s and they're like, oh my gosh, we're becoming materialistic. Well, so they go headlong in the other direction to the well, extreme. And even, even and beyond, we, we do that. Yeah. We overcorrect, and then but the pendulum swings and it rebalances. Yeah. And which you know is is funny because there's like you know so like during that period of time as well you know in in the East there was communism, which is also a materialistic mindset as well. But it's mm. the materialistic mindset that looks after you know 
well, the, the issue with this idea with the common good is it has been subverted to this idea, it, but it's still material. Marx was a materialist. Materialist indeed. And, and it, it was just deal, no no time for the sacred life or anything like that. It's all the material and, and, and how well something works can just be yeah. observed through the data and how and much if, resource goes here or there. And if you just if you just fix the material needs of the masses, they'll be happy. But... Well, we how forgot. do you how do you do that to have the you know, uh, you know to have your highest good as the common good and to care for all the masses? They ended up killing hundreds of thousands, millions of people. You yeah. can't you know dwindle the population down to say ten or twenty percent of its yeah. initial size, or even if it's just fifty percent of its initial size, just like hundreds of millions of people, um, d to be able to make it more equal. Yeah, that's so that's you know so the highest good can't be the common good because the common good could be the idea of a dictator to a mass genocide to make a yeah. smaller number of people be able to be forced to live at the e an equal level but well, so we came up with the idea of meritocracy here in the u.s to try and figure out a, a fair way oh well and actually beyond you know of allowing people upward mobility that, but know, also country, to earn this, as well as this as much as you're willing to work this country was built on the idea of even flawed as it was back then merit but mm -hmm. So, you know, the issue on both sides of the planet at this period of time, whether it be consumerism or socialism, communism, whichever sect of socialism you want, it was materialistic and paid no mind to mm. the human spirit, the, you know, the humans strive for wisdom and connection in that way. Mm -hmm. You know, in the consumerist end, you know, you, you, can, you can fill a lot of holes and voids and feeling temporarily with buying things, things right. that come in plastic mm -hmm. and are dropped off right at your door. Mm -hmm. but you're still neglecting something whereas like saying like communism yeah you can make everybody equal and no one above anybody else but that's just the physical things and you're not even meeting the physical needs at that point right but still it was just only looking at the material opposed to because we're not just material beings if mm -hmm. we were we wouldn't have this drive to become more and to worship and to formulate religion and look out into the stars you know other... yeah we wouldn't have a sense of wonder yeah or so, the capacity you know, for agape yeah. un unconditional love like and, people can actually have like no hard... matter what your kid does you still love it and it's hard know? doing science in that realm because that's you, you it's hard to measure it's hard to find a measure of what is wise what is wisdom what is the process of wisdom mm -hmm. you know it's not something you can put in a beaker or stick a ruler next to you know you need another kind of beaker or ruler that we haven't come up with and we don't have the psychotechnology for it yet or we haven't combined the psychotechnologies we've had in an optimized machine if you will mm -hmm. yet mm -hmm. that's reliable iterated over multiple instances throughout time for regardless people yeah, yeah. yeah. so you know but but we're getting there trial yeah. by error yeah. you know we've made a lot of mistakes along the way we've run a lot of experiments and we're learning more and more how to actually commune, you know, conversate, work together, dialogue. And Verbeke's uh, now engaging in a process called Dialogos. He's hoping to resurface a lost uh, cap capacity that human beings have, which is mm -hmm. the ability to solve problems that we could never solve by ourselves together. And so we can actually work kind of like a hive mind, the human, and we've all actually experienced a little bit of this in our lives at some points to where you're on a deep conversation with some, someone else or in multiple people. And all of a sudden something happens to where you're all just kind of like talking without thinking about it anymore. All your ideas are adding up and you're figuring something out together that you never could have figured out by yourself. 
and that it, there's like a logos that comes about. There's something fundamental about our awareness that transcends all of us that can come about like, say it's you and I talking, a third personality enters the room that is both of us. And so human consciousness can upgrade itself and work in kind of a hive mind kind of way, but we've lost this practice. We've lost all knowledge almost of this practice besides what Plato talks about and in, in the procedural knowledge of how to do it because we haven't been doing it for generations. So all we have is the theoretical knowledge yeah. is we can read about it and we can understand it, but we don't have the practice. Like you need to ride a bike for a while to get good at it. If you keep on riding for a long time, you might become a pro BMX mountain biker or something like that, right? We have not been practicing this for like 2,000 years in earnest and we need to bring it back and once we do we can start and Birbeke if you go to his channel on YouTube you'll see him engaging in what he terms dialogos with other people and the generation, they actually demonstrate this kind of hive mind process the generation of logos through a dialogue mm-hmm. you know and a dialogue is a, literally logging of mm-hmm. the dialogue between two individuals yes. is the logging of ideas through two individuals mm-hmm the method he has is, or the method that is practiced with these groups of individuals is a way where everybody has a role that helps, well, one person literally logs, but then helps create a logos out of just the dialogue itself. So it's mm-hmm. not just dialogue, but also is something that create is a... And almost a person A generate, the yeah. word generative mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, mechanism, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, that you can participate in. Um, worth looking into it's it's interesting um yes they do a little bit of appreciation prayers in the beginning but it helps set your head straight so yeah a little little meditation to ground yeah. oneself in the sense of presence but and it does require a certain amount of self-awareness and um you know having dissolved identification and attachment to the ego i think that's it's, the goal of the roles that you play you know you that have, certainly is the goal it's yeah. like well w- and that's why you take on those positions yeah, those and, different roles and then they shift it helps it, it helps uh counteract that what is it it's, the disposit the ego ego disposition it's like the presenter the presenter of mm-hmm. the whatever problem they're all trying to work on and then the person receiving it trying to understand it that yep. relationship of those two interlocutors mm-hmm. Then there's the scribe the who scribe. is keeping track of things, and then there's the herald that points mm-hmm. out the not so obvious thing that they're all kind of dancing around that the group may have not seen yet. Mm-hmm. And then every so often, once an understanding comes, it shifts. Yes. And then one becomes the other, becomes the other, becomes the other, and yes. that helps. And you're de- putting forth an de- idea. Ego personalize. Yes. It. So you can be like, well, at this point in time, I am the scribe. That's what I'm doing right here. You know. It's really clever the, how it's built know, into it to help us yeah. maintain that egolessness as much as possible yeah yeah because so, all, all you're doing is you're putting self, forth you're an idea that you're not entirely sure about this is your basic yeah. idea of it but yeah. this is as far as i've gotten yeah yeah and then the the person you're just telling it to takes over and everybody mm-hmm. switches places so if we take this process and aim it at the greatest challenges that we face as a human species we might actually be able to eke our way through the needle and it certainly seems like we're at one of those eye of the needle moments. Well, you know, you if know. you take take the eye of a needle and you stick it really close to your eye, you can see everything through it. I'm just saying. You just got to get close to it. Hmm. Hmm. 
Mm. That's deep. That's deep. <laughs> there, there's occasional deepness in the shell. So you're saying that we need to shrink ourselves <laughs> to crawl through the, or just get really close. Well, the closer you get to the problem, you know. Uh, well, that's the thing. You know, there's problems that are seem so far away, but the more you get into them, you're literally getting closer to them, bringing them into yourself to understand them, then seeing through them into reality, right? Yeah. We can't see the light at the end of the tunnel or the eye of the needle very well because we are far away from it. But if we can somehow get ourselves close enough to it that the spin boon, the we bend and the spin, the spoon, the spoon yeah. Whew, wow. I was in the matrix there for a moment and I got discombobulated. So, yeah, you're not trying to bend a spoon. You're bending yourself. Yep, so the place. idea of the self needs to be transcended for us to get through the eye of the needle as a species. And a lot more people on this planet need to awaken. You know, I don't know well, that's that other... we need to awaken to the level of Buddha or Jesus. Well, that's the other but... end of the closer you get to the needle, the more you can see through the eye as well. So as the problems get closer and the, mm-hmm. and the results of the problems get closer and closer to more and more people and get closer into their lives, the more that they can see the problem, yes. But if they choose to see through it and see what can come yeah. out of it. Yeah. And that's where it's also we got I think that's, that's what we need. We need billions of eyes to yeah. look at that needle at the same time to get it into enough focus for the species the whole species no, as a whole to it's, understand it's kind of happening you know we're realizing that and then we are the whole yeah <laughs> a whole loaf the well, whole loaf. it's like we're kind of like a the um, whole meat loaf. you know a, a package of whole uh the, the hawaiian rolls they all start out as oh, one man. loaf but you can rip them apart <laughs> and you can consume them <laughs> all right i'm getting silly we are truly are here. just one loaf of mini pieces <laughs> yes facets of the same crystal the light shines through every face uniquely. All right, fam. This has been a good one. We are down to five more. Oh, my goodness. That's it. The last five. The next episode is on the nature of wisdom. What does he mean by nature? Oh, we're getting into it. I'm stoked, fam. I hope you guys are excited as we are. And if you're just running into us here, welcome. To meaning making 101 we've been following john verveke's awakening from the meaning crisis if you've enjoyed any of this whatsoever make sure that you get over there on john verveke's channel it's linked in the description smash the like and subscribe for the man he deserves to be heard by as many people as possible and you know check out his channel there's a lot more going on there. there's meditation teaching there's tai chi there's dialogo sessions there's wisdom uh, he's now got a, another series following this awakening series called Beyond Socrates. So how can we actually enact the hope we wish to see in the world now that we've accumulated all this knowledge? Now how do we get into the process of it, the particip- participatory and the procedural aspects of it? And uh, that's that's going to be really, really uh awesome i think i think that's going to help this planet a lot if uh even a small fraction of us tune into it because we'll start to ripple out a new way of being that will all of a sudden you'll start to see come out in video games and movies and art and music and in our culture yep and we will shift we will change the trajectory that we are on and instead of flying off and down a cliff we will soar we will launch off into outer space and beyond both inner and outer, forever, in peace. Meow. Love you guys. It's been a good one. 
We will see you next time. Look for us next Wednesday. It looks like 7 o'clock is going to be the time um, that is working for us now. So look for us at 7 p.m. EST every Wednesday right here on Facebook, Twitch, or YouTube. Thank you all for tuning in. Make sure that you like, subscribe, and if you also would like to listen to this podcast without using up all your bandwidth, you can always listen to the podcast on all the major podcast networks. So we're everywhere, Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, all of those. Look us up. We're on Google and the rest. And you can uh, go ahead and throw some ratings down on iTunes and uh Spotify as well would be very helpful. So thank you guys so much. We love you all. We will see you next time.